0: Today's episode of Between the Covers is brought to you by Courtney Mom's new book, Out from Tin House, entitled Costa Alegre. Inspired by the real life relationship between the heiress Peggy Guggenheim and her daughter, Peggy, Courtney Mom's Costa Alegre has been lauded by Laura Vanderberg, Julie Bunton, Amelia Gray, and Aro Kwan. Imaginative and touching, Costa Alegre captures a tricky mother daughter relationship in the context of an elite group of surrealists fleeing Hitler's Europe to a mysterious resort in the Mexican jungle. Consider picking up or ordering a copy at your local independent bookstore. And while we are talking about Tin House's incredible lineup of books in 2019, there are several you can get. As thank yous for becoming a supporter of the show, including Kristen Arnett's mostly Dead Things, Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing, which, as an aside, just won the Locus Award in nonfiction and is a finalist for The Hugo, and Morgan Parker's Magical Negro, or become one of the select few early readers who receive 12 Tin House books in three seasonal packages several months before they are available to the general public. If that isn't enough to entice you, once you hear today's guest, Max Porter, read his own work, which he does from four different points of view during our conversation, I suspect if you are anything like me, you will be eager and anxious and even desperate to hear more. Porter adds the reading of a poem that he just wrote, for the singer-songwriter Joan Shelley to the bonus archive all of this the books the early readership subscription access to the bonus audio and more can be found at patreon.com/between the covers enjoy today's program
1: these stories are about the id unleashed they're about the wildness and I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells
0: you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that.
1: You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story.
0: had no idea how to write a novel. Didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and editor Max Porter. After receiving a master's in art history, Max Porter worked in bookstores, winning the 2009 Bookseller of the Year Award, and eventually became an editor and then editorial director at Granta and Portobello Books, working with authors such as Rebecca Solnit, Ben Marcus, Eleanor Catton, and Hong Kang. Max Porter, however, is best known for his debut novel, Grief is a Thing with Feathers, a book that was shortlisted for the British book industry debut fiction book of the year, the Goldsmiths Prize, the Guardian First Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard First Book Prize, and which won the 2016 International Dylan Thomas Prize and the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Max Porter is here today on Between the Covers to talk about his follow-up, his second novel entitled Lanny, just out from Grey Wolf Books. Lanny has received starred reviews from Library Journal, Booklist, Kirkus, and Publishers Weekly. And A Kindred Spirit to Grief is a Thing with Feathers, Lanny is also a book that resists categorization. For instance, Booklist says Porter has created both an entertaining tale and a novel of exceptionally creative experimentation and genre extension. Publishers Weekly describes Lanny as a combination of pastoral, satire, and fable. Library Journal calls it an edge-of-your-seat read, and Kirkus calls it elegantly mysterious. Kamala Shamsi says it shouldn't be possible for a book to be simultaneously heart-stopping, heart-shaking, and pulse-racing. And Ocean Vong describes Lanny as a powerful yet tender reclamation of the imagination, love, and art-making, all of it a brilliant defense of the outsider's tenuous foothold in society. Welcome to Between the Covers, Max Porter.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So so much as Lanny troubles genre distinctions as a novel, a novel whose building blocks feel more like prose poems and with an attention to the visual on the page, there are also many themes to the novel that one wouldn't necessarily expect to find together. A meditation on place and the idea of home, on childhood and the imagination, an engagement with the the despair of the political moment and of environmental catastrophe that we're hurtling toward, all of which is somehow also folded into a crime narrative and an ecological fable. So I'm curious about how all of this started, because in one interview, you said your attempts, your first attempts at this book were rather unhealthy because, as you put it, your political feelings collapsed into the effort. This, and this suggested to me the possibility that what you wanted to say was getting in the way of, of creating art. So I was hoping we could start there with the ways, the things that motivated you to sit down and to begin were also possibly the things you needed to navigate around to write Lanny.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, it began for me with the story of the old man and the boy. I wanted to write about friendship. And I wanted to write about a creative educational relation, you know, a platonic relationship where something is being taught, but outside of the context of school and uh, and educational systems and no grading, you know, no right or wrong. And no good or bad. So all those sort of qualitative, horrible things we put on kids lives very early on. I don't know how it is here, but very early on in the UK, kids are being graded and marked. And it's the same as the kind of diagnostic culture, you know, it's very unhealthy. Um. And so I wanted to write this sort of love story, really, between two people based on the physicality of making work and, and marks on the page and looking at the world and, and teasing meaning out of the world. And and that be not a sexual relationship, of course, but, but um, certainly an erotic relationship because of the properties of art-making and, and affection between two people and also human beings in the wild. So that's, what, as you say, what's the kind of ecological heart of the book is this rapture, this, this very natural... Not at all overdetermined and not at all at that age political relationship this kid has with the natural world. And then I was like, right, I said it in an English village and then I started to write it. And then and it became flooded with this kind of, um, kind of caricature of, of casual xenophobia and like petty ideas of small island nationalism and stuff. And then, and then at a certain point, I realized that actually that's how it is. Like I didn't need to be particularly subtle about those things because they are not, present, they are not presenting themselves subtly in the UK, um, same, same as it is here. Like if you were going to write about the rise of populism in the States and stuff, th- there's nothing subtle about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, in fact, one of the problems perhaps in our community uh, is that we've tried to be subtle about something that, you know, or we've tried to be um, uh, rigorous and nuanced in our analysis of some of this stuff when actually it's just blunt it 's just un- it 's just unpleasant and it 's unkind, and you need therefore blunt tools to handle blunt blunt materials so yeah that 's how I started and then i and then I sort of thought, well, one of the things I can do is just unlike in my first book where it 's very autobiographical, I can have a lot of fun building these people in this place so i I just started building I invented people, and I gave them lives and inner lives, and I started modeling them. Um, and I found like suddenly I was totally in love with with writing with the with the idea of um inventing things and then testing them against themselves and and then they kind of answer back in a way that you hear writers say you know that my my characters spoke back to me. I found that to be true hmm.
0: well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the building of people in this book you 've talked before about the desire to leave as many doors open for the reader as possible, and you said that when talking about how you portray your characters, that actually more happens the more you leave out, uh, that there are many things you don't need to tell us. And then in a sense, it's in the editing process that you, you prevent yourself from over-determining your characters. So I, I'd love like yeah. to hear about this, this um, maybe this ethos of yours and then the process around how, how, how you render a character on the page sort of by removing things from the character.
1: I think it comes from reading a lot of poetry and realising that there's a certain amount of exactitude and that you can achieve with economy. And and that the novel, particularly the kind of modern, as it were, like social realist novel, um, and particularly a certain type of cool, urbane, um, relatively cosmopolitan novel, um, tells you absolutely everything uh, and, and kind of wallops you around the head with exposition so there isn't much room for thinking. And I find that disappointing as a reader. I find it boring. Um, but also I find that it, it's, a, it's an easy way for, for novelists, even and, and perhaps accidentally sometimes or sub, subconsciously, to just ladle their own politics into a book, which means that there isn't any space for my politics to, to mingle and for me to learn anything about the world. And but given that ambiguity is one of the, to me, the principal characteristics of life on Earth as a human being, like not knowing is interesting, when you know something or you're told something, there's no growth. So, my whole philosophy, really of fiction, is that you you can quite deftly and quickly with 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 the turn of phrase or a line get to the truth of a thing and then leave it there for the reader to to become complicit in or to misjudge or or even correctly guess at um and that if you do that across a whole book with a kind of tapestry of of economy like that or, or of white space, as in the case of my first book. Then the energy that's generated for the reader when they move from one thing to another, or they get to the end of the book and they're like, "Oh, I recognise that name. I think I thought that person was a fool," and they go back and realise that actually they've been sort of tricked into thinking that but You know, it means that the book is alive after you've turned the final page, hmm. for us as, as as philosophical and political beings. You know, imbibing this this stuff. Otherwise, you're just uh, otherwise you're just saying, "Eat this." With, yeah. no, with no opportunity for response or collaboration. I do think books are collaborative efforts, really, between the reader and the text. And, and if they're not, then there's a kind of tyranny there for me.
0: Yeah, I wanted to um, go further with that idea of collaboration because there's a quote that you've said that I'm going to read back to you that makes me feel like maybe... You're
1: going to read it in my own voice. <laughs>
0: no, I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I could. But um, it sort of feels like a, a way in which you might be connecting environmental concerns or the way your environmental concerns manifest on the level of syntax. So you've said you can get to a person, both a character and a role within a community, their socioeconomic type, their psychosexual type. You can do that in just half a line. You just set them up deftly in relationship to other things. It's not what they are on their own. It's how they're responding organically to the other things in their ecosystem. And I guess I wondered, do you see this as, a personal ethos beyond an aesthetic ethos in the sense that identity or, or the building of characterization at heart is a relational thing. The way you're describing also the collaboration between reader and writer. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, yes. And I want the text to be, a uh, it's a nice quote. Please do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I you, know sound, I you sound that. pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, right. I, um, I want the text to be a living thing and therefore for its politics to be uh, Breathing and, and a kind of membrane through which the one reading experience moves, but isn't 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 set, isn't trapped, and therefore that the book changes it with every encounter with its reader. And I hope that it would change every time I read it as well. And that's one of the, I mean I, I mean that literally because I've got these 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 flowing voices these overheard voices in the book. Um, but but I think I also mean it in terms of not um, not locking people in with too much, like for example, I don't. I don't particularly have a hierarchy between different types of conversation, you know, between different types of encounter between human beings, and, I, and I, I guess that comes. I mean, you want to connect it to the environmental ethos. I suppose that comes from. A, I was thinking about this last night, actually. With, I think it's a kind of an animist impulse at work on my, on my, and I didn't really think about this while I was writing it. Came naturally, and it's only after it that one can be analytical after the fact. I think it's to do with the fact that human beings aren't the only consciousness is at work in the world and that grotesque things have occurred because of our sense of superiority in nature and actually what Lanny represents is, an, is a very nat- natural um, recognition that, that um, other things are more powerful than us mm. and, and probably have greater longevity and greater skill and greater survivability and all this kind of stuff so really what, come, what pours out of him is respect and, and awe, he's very awestruck as a person and therefore he's in pain because the adult world and the world of inequality starts to starts to make him feel extremely. And, and that was the case for all of us. You know, that moment of sort of political awakening when you're 10 or 11 and you start to find the world very painful to look at. And you, you don't want to lose that rawness. And you almost have at that age and into your teenage years, you have a campaigning instinct that adults say you'll get over. Because sooner or later cap- capitalism and its methods will just envelop you and deaden those nerve endings and and mm. and you know make you behave like a zombie like your parents do, or whatever it is um, and so he 's just coming in he 's just coming into that, and therefore has for me quite his politics are quite progressive um it, and i don 't i don 't even need to tell you what they are you can guess at them and you, and you see them on the page, but he he is um, he has effortlessly such things like um like quite radical philosophical traits such as like forgiveness and equality in nature and so he's a kind of proto-pagan like he's a kind of non-doctrinaire pagan and uh, and a lot of kids are. So when you get reviews of this book, particularly on the right in the UK, sort of like, oh, he's just pretentious. He's just annoying. Mm. It's like, well, what is it he's saying that annoys you? Because he's not saying anything particularly weird. But he's obviously what you're saying, what you're reading in him is obviously a reprimand of the way you think, or the way that you've become acclimatized to certain lazinesses or something in your thinking. So I find that very interesting that he's a mirror, because he hardly says anything, I and mean, yeah. I don't I don't give him anything really. He's almost like a an absence in the middle of the book.
0: And he is sort of a rebuke to his own dad or his dad, f- I think feels him as a rebuke to maybe some of his own choices. And yeah. I, I want to maybe talk more about this idea that, um, you, you, know, children are expected to eventually get enfolded into the disappointment of the adult capitalist world. Yeah, uh, cause it feels like one of the biggest relational aspects of Lanny is around place and the way different characters are def- defined by how they either engage with place or or ignore the place that they're in Mm -hmm. and i i kind of wanted to start with maybe you could just start with describing lanny's parents who they are and and what motivates them to move out to the countryside in the first place to live outside of london Mm -hmm. and yet commute back into london to work
1: for for robert who is a kind of worker bee of of late capitalism he he is he says, by his own admission, in a moment of kind of reflexiveness at the end of the book, that he is he is only defined in this place or you know his only permission to be in this place is arranged for him by a mortgage lender, so it is a transaction for him, and he lives there because of its proximity to London, and therefore he is alarmed and and, as you say, like rebuked in some way by Lanny's apparently organic immediate organic rapport with the place. But which 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 you can't buy you know like the like the, like the horrible racist neighbor says you cannot buy a sense of belonging on your mobile phone and he's sort of slightly gutted that you can't because that that was his <laughs> assumption you right. know and that you know for him he, he he's he's very much a millennial in as much as like he he actually probably would look on his phone and see if there's an app to village life or if there's a like a way to be friends with it like respectability is his fetish he wants to be liked and he wants to england is a place pinpricked all over and and riven uh, you know like a kind of piece of scar tissue by class class is the great elemental force in british society so he's desperate to be liked by like the skinhead in the pub the football fan but also by the land-owning guy and he and he so his whole thing is a sort of performance of of half country half half city jolie is is different she's in some respects, a traumatised person. She speaks quite candidly, but barely at all about postnatal depression. So you know that the village for her is a place to regrow herself after years of of pain, and she's been involved in, in a world that she found distasteful, the world of acting. And now she's writing. It felt obvious to me to make her write because I am someone that has to be making stuff the whole time. Um, and so, if you told me I couldn't write, I'd paint. And if you told me I couldn't paint, I'd I'd sing. And it, you know, uh, and and she's of that ilk as many of us are. So she's writing, and she's writing relatively traumatic things because she's interested in it. She's interested in harm against the woman's body. And I wanted her to be smart. I didn't just want her to be like endlessly moaning about her husband being away. That felt too much like a cliche. And actually, none of the people I know, men or women, would actually allow themselves to be defined by that anyway. So I wanted her to have a bit of an edge to her. And I'm interested in psychoanalysis and I wanted her to be slightly unknowingly kind of representative of the kind of Kleinian good enough mother thing. You know that that this this kind of agony of her relationship with Lanny, which has like a bit like the art making relationship with Pete is is almost a kind of um, an erotic vocabulary there in, mm. in in the raising of children and the pain of losing children in that that loss being built into the love that's there at the beginning and stuff. Um and yeah, and and the, and the village for her is 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 uh, there is no idea of kind of um, rural romanticism attached to it for her. She finds it noisy and intrusive and um, tight and like um, judgmental. She, see, she for her she's walks into a kind of spider's web of like relatively toxic and specific local um, assumptions about people and stuff like that. And some of that is kind of a legacy of the religious community that a place like that would have some of it's the kind of way in which those places are now look at Brexit, for example, like Brexit goes down right into these places, like families fall apart over it. Like that we, we are a country at war with itself. Um, mm. and I never wanted to speak explicitly about that or God forbid, write a Brexit novel, but I hope it's present when the village folds in on itself with them kind of caught in the middle. You see that these, these are traits that they're universal. You
0: know? Yeah, no, for sure. And I, and it was interesting, because the long-term residents, they resent the gentrifiers who are coming in, the commuters who aren't really part of the place. But you don't get the sense that the long-term residents have a a more enlightened relationship to the land. No. In fact, um, they seem motivated by fear and, and nationalism and petty concerns of property.
1: Um, or, or just even... The necessity of their routines. I mean, that's the thing. We are odd creatures of habit, aren't us? And most people's relationship to the land isn't even defined by ecological fact. I, I am breathing air that is filtered by these trees, or I am drinking water that has come up from these springs, or whatever. It's literally just a place to walk their dog, right? Like, or or it's a route to the football pitch, or a route to the pub. Like, most people's lack of engagement in it is 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 actually like almost sociopathic. I don't know what the ecological equivalent of that would be, like a kind of Anthropocene blindness to the fact that you are living on a planet that sustains you almost like you're playing a video game. You haven't yeah. actually realized you're made of the same atoms as, as he says, as, as this, as this place.
0: It, well, the, I, it made me theorize about why the, the two human characters that seem most connected to the land in a non pathological way are Lanian and the older avant-garde artist who is famous in London, but merely eccentric in the town that everyone calls Mad Pete. And neither one of them have a long history in the town. So, whatever communion that they're having isn't through longevity in this place, it's through something else. And I was thinking at first that perhaps in the case of Lanny, it's a quality of childhood. And for Pete, it is a byproduct of being an artist. But in the end, I was wondering if it had something to do with being motivated and animated by curiosity rather than fear. If there was like something about being inquisitive and curious that you are connecting to a different sort
1: of land ethos. Yeah, I think I am. And I think that that, that probably is just um, that is just a poetic instinct alive in anybody or anything, that, that you stop and look and you stop and connect the growth of a thing with its decomposition a season later. Or, you know, you, you connect water being pulled up into a tree with water being poured into your belly, you know. That's why Dead Papa Toothwart had to be existed as a character, I'm sure we'll get to him. But like he's what you realise is he is both of them. And if he is if he is existing in either, it's because there's this sort of perfect jouissance, like this kind of ecstatic sweet spot that exists when you when you ha- I mean we know this from read from being readers of poetry or or even like great theology or anything. Like you the observation carries with it the the the, the seed of in, a, a potential enlightenment further down the road, and and some people just aren't open to or interested in that enlightenment. And therefore, that there is hostility immediately present in being someone that chooses to stop and look. Yeah, um, and that's all they're doing together, Pete and Lanny. It's not to do with like how well he can draw or whether he's going to get better marks in his art lessons at school. It's just that they're looking at, at stuff together. In case
0: you just tuned in, we're talking to the writer and editor Max Porter about his second novel from Grey Wolf, Lanny. So even though you describe Lanny, the child, as maybe a universal in terms of his uh, politics or maybe not universal, but a common politics for someone who's who's 10 or 11 as a child, Lanny's parents and the town folk, they, they see Lanny as utterly different than them and, and sort of uncanny in many ways. They describe him as away with the fairies or almost possessed. At one point when we are in, in Lanny's mom's point of view, there's a line that she says— Uh, she realizes that life at home, his time at school, what she thought of as his real existence was only a place he visited. And that line reminded me of something Ursula K. Le Guin has said about home. And she said that home isn't your family, nor is it your house where you live, but rather that home is imaginary. Uh, But by that, she doesn't mean non-existent. So in, in her specific words, she said, home imagined comes to be it is real realer than any other place but you can't get to it unless your people show you how to imagine it whoever your people are I just was curious how that how that struck you
1: no well I mean all praise to Ursula K Le Guin I mean that's about it right um certainly Lanny is I what the thing is, the, the idea of him being like cute or pretentious or whatever, I, I find it relatively disappointing as a reading. Only because he actually has some sting in his tail, and 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 that is judgment. And I think you have to listen to the judgment of children. I think when your children turn around and say, "You are." mired in 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 hypocrisy and and short-term thinking and etc you ought to listen because they're not they're not saying that they're saying that because they see things freshly in it they're, they're at the beginning of their political formulation or whatever or spiritual in this case so the fact that lanny wants to be in the forest more than he wants to be at home and he wants to be building something in the forest that is an act of love to the people because he feels that isn't happening enough in the world as he sees it he 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 recognizes, you know, how art galleries work and how churches work and why people like to go to sport together and stuff. But what he doesn't think is happening is a communal adoration and excitement about natural forms and, and, and looking carefully at things that have grown. And he tries to fix that. And that is a kind of um there's an element of self righteousness there. You can you can see that, I suppose. Um, there's there's a kind of preachiness, I suppose, that some people might react to, I mean some people find him actively annoying in that regard. I, I I just I didn't I didn't even really think about that when I was. I don't see Lanny. I don't I don't I, I, I see Jolie thinking about Lanny. I see Robert thinking about Lanny. I never built him as a character. He's the only one I didn't need to because I'm more interested in what other people think of him. Um, and then I suppose what I'm, I'm more interested in is what the woods are feeling when he is in them mm. and they feel that he's a friend. And so ultimately it's a kind of love letter to friendship between us and the world. And, and obviously what, and, and as you point out yourself, like why is it that the child has that friendship and the retired avant garde artist has that friendship, and no one really in between does. No one else is invited into, to do that. And that, that, that comes close to the kind of, yeah, that comes close to the kind of ecological um, wishful thinking at the end of the book and everything.
0: Well, to connect that to the idea of more happening by taking more out, the the book is mostly told through a rotating first person narratives. Uh, we we jump from one person's head to another, and as you said, you were more interested in what people thought of Lanny than what Lanny himself was thinking. Uh, I didn't. He didn't strike me as as annoying or precious in any way oh, good, as, yeah. as a reader. But I was just curious about this book named Lanny with a central character named Lanny and with Lanny being a central absence. uh, Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that because Lanny, I mean, there are a couple times when Lanny speaks, but for the most part, we join all these other characters in, uh, seeing Lanny through the way others relate or talk about Lanny rather than from Lanny.
1: I just believe it's a more powerful method of creating a thing in the same way as, I mean, I just happened to see this, this poet's name written down here. The River Dart, in Alice Oswald's book, The River Dart, is never described like it begins here and it's small and then it gets bigger and then X number of people live in And She creates the river by telling us how it is how it is considered both by the, the, the natural world around it and by the people that use it. So it becomes a, a mirror of human activity. And that is therefore immensely powerful beyond any any any... Um, geological or topographical consideration of a river that I might be able to create for myself using things I know about rivers, it means that it is in me, and I want Lanny to therefore be in you uh, as as a reader. Um, so if I told you how old he was and like what his accent sounded like and how he looked or what kind of that would just interrupt that work for you same way as having a, a, a cover of a book with a picture of the character on is just horrible interruption of the imaginative work of building it for yourself and i and i had to find that out myself like when i was writing the book there were some scenes that were um uh, preventing that work happening i think um and they they tended to be um sort of accidental exposition on my part to do with things like um sexuality or um good and evil you know like the, like the kind of um i suppose the kind of narrative architecture of the place and I just realized I don't need to do that at all like I've done that work but my my reader doesn't need to know I've done it I can take it all out and Mm. it become you know my village is not your village and that was I learned that in my first book where I had the mum and I took her out um so that she could be more powerful in absentia And, uh, and I I suppose it might be something I'm interested in beyond this book as well because um, I, do, I do credit readers with unbelievable versatility. Like People have read a lot of books and, and read across forms in, way that, in ways that like the algorithms don't tell us is possible. So that your Lanny is entirely different from someone in Germany's Lanny is absolutely right and good. And it might possibly even be an emancipatory thing for us all in the way that we're supposed to read in very culturally specific ways. Like, I, the irony of Lanny is that it's a, the most English book of all time in some ways. And also I hope not at all. Um, I hope it translates. You know, it's a series of two-dimensional templates slid on for the reader's engagement. Well, mm.
0: yeah. oh, I wonder about Lanny and the ways he's not captured by language. If his sense of wonder and playfulness and the way he roams the town unsupervised, the way he has an uncanny ability to navigate a garden maze without yeah. hesitation, if this is somehow related to the parts of him that dis- that escape description, that sort of de- escape words. Uh, I, this... want,
1: I want the whiff of miracle on him, yeah. I think, slightly. No, he does like, have I, it. I want that. And, 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 and the, before this was a poem I wrote 10 years ago about Pete and Lanny, way before that I used to write nonsense verse. And the reason I wrote nonsense verse cause it was it was because it satisfied me in a way that actual poetry didn't. Um, and it's one of the reasons I've got more and more into, into that kind of poetry where language collapses and, and isn't apparently conventional realist language or description or lyric. Um, and one of these was, you know, um, it ended up being in my first book of it, but like um, rinted flack is cock cochran to black done Lanny glass dorge and smooth flat back. And I wanted it <laughs> to be more like, you know, almost like the the, um, the Jabberwocky. Yeah. That these kind of spell like incantatory things, which would be the oral tradition so that so that you tell that round a fireplace a bit like Ridley Walker. And no one knows what you're saying effectively, but there, that you know that there is power in those, you know, that there is power around the word Lanny. You know, and mm-hmm. and actually from the Haida, Haida tradition and stuff like that, like a lot of indigenous poetic traditions have that where actually the mean the the, the, the narrative tools around the name aren't important. But, you know, that name is a receptacle of great power mm. um, and it's the reader's job to, to, to do the investment, not the, not the authors at all. He's just a vessel.
0: With Lanny sort of dis, sort of escaping description and Mad Pete and sort of working beyond language, too, as a as a visual artist. The other sort of primary person that is, escapes being reduced by language is, is non-human. It's the shape-shifting, hard-to-pin-down dead papa toothwort that you mentioned earlier. So uh, I was hoping you could conjure him for us and, and dead papa toothwort's unusual relationship to language himself.
1: He's a kind of mythic voyeur who's lived underneath or next to or in this place for as long as it's been a place. He he is the place. He's the sort of spirit of the place. And he feasts when he's awake because sometimes he sleeps on the, on the voices of the place and he listens. He's like a kind of pervert for language, really, and, and he's not interested in good or bad language. None of the hierarchical considerations that we have in, in the world are... Uh, are relevant to him he just likes to listen to human beings and he's particularly into us now because obviously we've been never talked as much as we do like we're always talking to each other and we're sending text messages and we're chatting and we're on the phones a lot so as someone that loves language um in all its forms he's just gorging on this place he's like a sommelier you know what I mean like he loves he loves cussing and he loves um banter and gossip and jokes, um and, and he and he sort of delights on the hypocrisy of the place. So he's like he scrolls through the village like it's all the soap operas, you know, late at night when you just you just want to watch shit TV and you just you just you're kind of feasting on on the crapness of it really. And he's in that that's how he relates to human beings and, and yet there is this thing that he's got this special taste for, he's fallen in love with, um, which is which is Lanny.
0: There's also another thing that you, you, you've you described dead Papa Toothwort as. So on, on the one hand, as you described, he feeds off of language. But on the other hand, much like the crow in Grief is the Thing with Feathers, you've described him as a linguistic disruptor, mm-hmm. someone that gives you the opportunity to break the conventions or conventional syntax um, that might not otherwise get employed in a book. But I also kind of wondered if that linguistic disruptor both The Crow and Dead Papa Toothwort is also sort of a dis- disruptor of business as usual in a bigger way, like yeah. the violation of, of conventions and of maybe tired routines of, of people in an unthinking way sort of sleepwalking through Yeah, their or, or, or even
1: better, tired sentences, you know, tired tired sentences. syntax, let's disrupt and energize that, definitely. There is more of that in The Crow linguistically, I think, because he's actually a poet's Worst nightmare, best nightmare. So he's actually bringing with him, you know, Beckett and Joyce and and you know Cummings and all that stuff because he's he, he's he's on the attack and his medicine box is full of language. Um, Dead Papa Tooth what would be the same, but but more with with narrative with with history. So he brings to the present the he collapses the past into the present, and I want that because I want the wisdom of the trickster, I suppose, but also the kind of um, um, anti. Canonical energy of of the of the historical trickster, like he's he's um, anarchic about um, the self importance of the presence. So he would be like, you know, your microwave dinner is, you know, he he would link the microwave dinner circa two thousand and seventeen to. You know the Anglo-Saxon gruel of of 670, or you know the, the you know the, the the flirting on on WhatsApp of 2018 with the you know with the with the sexual abuses of, of a Roman soldier in, in you know 40 AD, and and that's just his, and it, You know that's that that to me like just wakes the whole thing up, and it's also a joy to write, and I hope it's kind of pleasurable to read, and it's funny because I'm kind of poking fun at. The kind of, particularly the kind of patriarchal instinct to tell history as a story, you know. So he's taking yeah. the piss out of England's sense of itself as an island story with a beginning, a middle, and end, and great moments. He's like, the great moments mean nothing to him, and in fact, the only really significant moments for him would be environmental ones because he is green. He's like, he's the verdant spirit of the place. So he notices pollution, and he he would be noticing the coming up, uh, you know, apocalypse. Um, but he wouldn't notice, you know. Brexit right which right. is kind of the that's why this book has I hope a, a kind of cathartic possibility for contemporary British readers because mm. like we always you know dead puppet tooth what, like if, if brought in in a kind of therapeutic fashion would be like you've always been run by a small elite they've always been in it for themselves poor people have always been fucked over by by rich people and people have generally the, the, the exception to the rule has been Good forestry and good husbandry of the land, taking taking care of the land with sustainability in mind, thinking of the children. That that selflessness has been the exception to the rule. Generally, people have taken and taken and taken. Mm. Um, And I I don't need to like you're nodding because you've read the book and it's in there, right? But I don't need to say that anywhere in the book. That that's his philosophy, and he Mm -hmm. comes armed with it. And and he's a creature of our time. He's not a bushy, green, tendriled, you know, um, spirit of the land nymph. He's made of it says on the first page he's made of old condoms and broken bits of fiberglass and junk and gasoline and <laughs> bits of broken Victorian medicine bottles. Um, so I hope I, I state my point relatively clearly on page one. <laughs> you yeah. know, we poison this place for good.
0: Yeah. Well, other than Lanny, Mad Pete and dead Papa Toothwart, everyone else seems to be carrying around an unexamined darkness, sort of a existential anxiety that is shaping their lives whose cause I don't think anyone is able to grasp themselves. So Lanny's parents have moved to the countryside for tranquility, but there's a sense of menace under the surface. Lanny's dad is all consumed by his job in the city. Lanny's mom is writing hyperviolent crime thrillers. The dad is paranoid someone is looking into the house. The mom is receiving prank phone calls that unnerve her. And even the local creatures are seen as inconveniences to dispose of rather than something to learn from. So I was hoping maybe you'd read two short sections um, that evoke the inner lives of Lanny's parents.
1: Lanny's dad. I wake up fists clenched and buzzing, Someone of cer- certain of someone downstairs, someone in the house. I used to get this a lot, but I'm more accustomed to the sound of the village now. I know a hedgehog making his way along the planted borders. I know the postman's early footsteps on the gravel. I know the alien hum of Mrs. Larton's late night tumble drying. This isn't that. This is a human body moving. There is someone in my house. I don't wake her. I get the cricket back from the wardrobe, and the little bones in my feet crack as I tiptoe out of the bedroom. My pulse is loud in my ears as I creep across the landing and pause listening at the top of the stairs. Nothing but my thump, thump, thump. Gingerly down the stairs, nothing. The words in my brain from the script of terrified male homeowner come on, then you fucking fuck, and a bladder squirm because I have no actual defensive power. I am not brave. I do not fight. I have never fought. I work in asset management and only fight in subtle ways on Microsoft Outlook. I'm terrified. There's nobody in the kitchen, but it shits me up being in there, imagining someone looking in loads of them, lines and lines of men with Hessian faces, with razor wire and acid, farmers by day, killers by night, invisible just beyond the window pane, watching one of their number stalk me through this house. Jesus, it scares and humiliates me. So I start to swagger a bit, performing the just looking in case I'm being watched. How daft? to be worried about what people think, even as I genuinely think there's an intruder in my home. Nobody in the hallway, nobody in the lounge, no axe between my shoulder blades, no shotgun pointed to the back of my head, just the dark corners of my house in front of me, just an interior design by my stylish wife, my own reflection, and I fling open the understairs cupboard, and I feel a proper chest pain, an angina spasm of dread, and then there's a tight squawk from upstairs, Robert! I run up three steps at a time, imagining with absolute conviction and clarity that there is a big man in a dark cloak in my bedroom and he has a knife against my wife's throat. And I stride in, bat-raised, and she's sitting up in bed. I heard something. Me too, I can't find anything. My ballsy woman, she looks fucking terrified. She whispers, in here. There's someone in here. There's something in the room. I run over, bat in hand, and I jump in bed beside her, suddenly childlike and not brave at all. I think of newspapers printing photos of our blood-stained walls. My heart is whomping in my chest. Is he in the wardrobe? Is he made of the sheets? Is he in the ceiling? Is he in my wife's skin? Is she hiding him? Can I kill a person? Will it hurt? Will he torture us? I'm frightened. I'm frightened. There's a rustle and a movement right here under us. With us, there's a man under our bed. Going to be killed in our beds. She is gripping my hand as hard as she gripped it when our son came ripping his way into the world. I need to do this. Maybe it's a lost cat or a frightened refugee or a dying fox or a robed poltergeist. I need to do this quickly and surprise myself with bravery so without too much pause, curiously calm by the recognition that she needs me, that I'm caring for her, I swing out of bed and I roll and land on the floor with a thump and raise my arm ready to swipe the bat hard across the carpet ready to smash my back again and again into the face of a man. Under the bed, eyes wide open, possibly asleep, possibly awake, is Lanny, lying stiff and long like a rolled-up rug with his arms by his side under our bed, gazing beyond me. Our child. No expression whatsoever on his face.
0: I hope you're going to do your audio book.
1: Ah, someone already did it. They did it? Yeah, they used actors, yeah.
0: Could, could we hear um, Lanny's mom on page 98, too?
1: Lanny's mom. I can't sleep. Robert's breathing sounds like a small door catching the carpet as it opens. Click, scuff, somebody enter. Click, scuff, somebody leave. I usually sleep well. The village is tight and muggy tonight. When I was very unwell, when Lanny was a baby in London, I read all sorts of things designed to scare young mums. About cot death and crushing, choking and allergies, flat skulls and bent backs, damaged eyes and bad milk. And one night I woke up and Lanny wasn't breathing and I accepted it. I accepted it easily. It was the middle of the night and I was thirsty and I'd forgotten my lines. And the duvet was boiling. I'd been dreaming about that film where the man in the barn pretends to be Jesus. The streetlights were toxic yellow through the curtains. And the baby had died. I lay very still. I didn't touch him. I didn't scream. I didn't move or wonder where Robert was or panic or cry. I just lay still and I could think clearly. It's over now. And you can have yourself back, I thought to myself. This tragedy will be the story of your whole life but it's your life and you can sleep forever and ever if needs be you've won sleep and lost fear no more baby I remember that night and I strangely cherish it
0: we've been listening to Max Porter read from his latest book Lanny One, that's what?
1: weird that you'd ask me to read those bits because I was going to read those bits at the bookstore tonight
0: oh you really were yeah yeah yeah, I'm still grieving right now that you're not doing the audio book. <laughs> I really <laughs> well, am.
1: <laughs> the, word, the difficult thing about the audio book is really good. They've done a good job. There's different actors. Pete's great. Robert's great. They're all brilliant. Jolie's particularly good, actually. But um, if you, in an audio book, if you can't hear everything, or there's overlap or something, then you, people send it back. They like, complain that it's faulty. Yeah. So the village voice, which should be overlapping, overheard, just mumbled. It should be like this, right? Um, um, Glenda and I were drawing our support for the bell rope. Right? Agricultural consulting. But, oh, bunning with Oscar, you should come along. Before the bypass, you could watch The Fox. You know, just like people's lives. You know? yeah. But Because it's so accurate. It's like, Bunning with Oscar, you should come along. <laughs> Before the bypass. And you're like, oh, that's a bit clear. Yeah, That doesn't sound overheard. That sounds performed.
0: Well, for people who haven't seen the book yet, these sections when Dead Papa Tooth water is, is- Peering in and listening to language, a lot of the language is literally undulating and uh, overlaid on top yeah, of it. It's each
1: dancing other. over the margins. So it doesn't look like text. It doesn't look like literature. It, look, it looks. It, it attempts to look like sound.
0: Well, uh, the reason why I wanted you to read both of those pieces, the sort of darkness inside of Lanny's parents, is because it feels like, on the one hand, Lanny's also sort of criticizing tabloid sort of fetishization of missing child cases. Mm. Cause at one point, uh, when people can't find Lanny, everyone sort of is, starts to assume the worst of the people they know. So they assume all oh, these, these benign art lessons with mad Pete, maybe mad Pete had this, this, um, perverse other life that's going on. Yeah. Um, and then people all of a sudden are criticizing Lanny's parents for allowing him this to, to roam around the town unsupervised. And all of a sudden out of the blue, they're terrible parents. And I was thinking about that in relationship to the way childhood has changed over the last half century, largely based on irrational fears around child abduction. When the number of child abductions, at least in the United States hasn't actually gone up over that time, but our entire way of, um, of raising children has changed based on this fear. And there's this essay, I don't know if you're familiar with it by Michael Shaban that he wrote maybe 10 years ago, where he is he wrote an essay about what he called the wilderness of childhood," and in it he argues that the reasons there are maps in adventure stories and fantasy stories is not to provide the opportunity for people to armchair travel but rather because of a certain type of childhood that they've already had mm. and and this is what he says um We have this idea of armchair traveling of the reader who seeks in the pages of a ripping yarn, or a memoir of polar exploration, the kind of heroism and danger in unknown, half-legendary lands that he or she could never hope to find in life. This is a mistaken notion, in my view. People read stories of adventure and write them because they have themselves been adventurers. Childhood is, or has been, or ought to be the great original adventure, a tale of privation, courage, constant vigilance, danger, and sometimes calamity. For the most part, the young adventurer sets forth equipped only with the fragmentary map, marked Here There Be Tigers and Mean Kid with Air Rifle, that he or she has been able to construct out of a patchwork of personal misfortune, bedtime reading, and the accumulated local lore of the neighborhood children, And then later in the same essay, he says this. The thing that strikes me now when I think about the wilderness of childhood is the incredible degree of freedom my parents gave me to adventure there. A very grave, very significant shift in our idea of childhood has occurred since then. The wilderness of childhood is gone. The days of adventure are past. The land ruled by children to which a kid might exile himself for at least some portion of every day from the neighboring kingdom of adulthood has in large part been taken over, co-opted, colonized, and finally absorbed by the neighbors. This is sort of my long way of bringing us back to Lanny and, and the decision that y- you do of portraying Lanny in the now-gone wilderness of childhood. Uh, at least in my mind, it feels like he's he's wandering in a childhood uh That also that is as a wilderness has also been destroyed.
1: That's beautiful. I love that shape-on thing. Um, I mean, that's it. I I wonder. I wonder if forced to put a date on it, whether you you put a date on it. Um, I mean, is it? Is it kind of? Because I had it. So maybe is it the nineties? What I don't. I don't know. I don't Um, know either. I. I. I mean, I don't. We. We. When I first wrote Lanny, we had this thing going on in the UK called Operation Yew Tree, which was the gradual. Exposing of men in the light entertainment industry as having been sexual abusers, predatory sexual abusers, and it and it, and it every it, it, it seemed, it's a bit like Me Too. Like there was barely anyone that wasn't screwing around either with kids or with interns or with you know or with assistants or whatever, you know. Like men are assholes was the kind of like finding as is the case, um, but it meant that there was a complete and sudden evaporation of trust. So you can't leave anyone with anyone anymore, and you can't like you can't even go to the park anymore, and you can't certainly as a man, single man, you can't go and sit in the park because you might be looking at kids or whatever it is, you know this, and this was engineered and accelerated and and controlled, puppeteered by by the tabloid newspapers um, to sell papers. So it was always completely irrational and and. Took on the tones of a hunt, so you know we had like paedophile hunters, as I'm sure you've had here, and all this kind of stuff. So it, it you know, militaristic overtones and all that, the, the kind of Cub Scout stuff. So same, the same kind of language you actually see now with like with the Brexiteers, like reclaiming England, or with the kind of eco-fascist movement. Like it's all, it all takes the language of of like adventure. Um, it, it's adopted the language of, it's co-opted the language of adventure in a really un, un, re, regretful way, as we see from Michael Chabon's thing. With Lanny, like, there's a sense that what, 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 what the finding of the thing afterwards, because obviously some people assume that it's dodgy, some people already thought it was dodgy, some people have their worst suspicions confirmed, other people, other people discover within themselves um, what you might even call a kind of social hunch or whatever, um, and they have that then confirmed or denied. And most people only, I don't want this to be a moralistic book, but most people discover that actually you shouldn't, um you shouldn't listen to anyone else you should develop your own opinions about things you know based on based on what it's actually like so like how dangerous is it to to put a kid out into the world like what are the actual risks if you're analytical about it they might slip and bang their head in the river it's a bit like terrorism what you know you, you know like the chances of being blown up by um a, a, a fundamentalist Islamist terrorist is is something like less than the chance of choking on like a raspberry-flavored lollipop, right? You can, right? We can be that specific about the unlikelihood of that happening and look at the multi-billion dollar industry to scare us about Islamic terrorism. And it's the same with children in the wild. The other thing in the UK specifically, there isn't much wild left. It's a very, very small place. And so actually the wild is now owned and chopped. And so the, so it, it, this, this goes hand in hand with like a... And a need for us all to like linguistically interrogate the very idea of outside. Anyway, it's the same as we're going to interrogate the idea of home, as Ursula K. Gwynn suggests. So, yeah, I love that shape on piece. That seems about right to me. And 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 I suppose that's what I that's that's how this began as a sort of heartbreak song. Was are we going to be able to have this kind of friendship anymore? Hmm. Uh, have,
0: have between have, Mad p- Pete, the older artist, and yeah. Lenny. For for one instance,
1: but even you know, like uh, even like the heteronormative environment is disappointing, isn't it? Like early early responses are like, does Jolie fancy Pete? Like, is there sexual tension between Jolie and like? Well, yes, in as much as there's sexual tension between you and me sitting here now. Like, the the binaries are so flat and, and counterproductive, aren't they? And so oppressive. Like, any way of describing things with an either or or a yes or no is terribly. Um, is, is persecution of the, possibility, the emotional possibilities of life on this planet. So all I want is that, as I said earlier, that, that ambivalence to thrive in this relationship. They don't know. You know, Lanny, Lanny intuits and guesses that Pete's a homosexual, but that's not a, that's not a discovery that needs a great deal of fanfare attached to it. He's curious about it, you know. Um, anyway, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, if we were to take this idea of wilderness of childhood to the questions of wilderness and wildness in the book... Um, because this is a big open question for me of how we can reorient storytelling so that our stories can help and act. What we need to do as a species at large, because I feel like poetry has done this for a long time and, mm-hmm. and science fiction has also, but just in, in, in stories that aren't science fictional or, are not poems. Um, Steven Sparks, who you just met the owner of point race books after reading Lanny, he tweeted something that, that echoes my feelings. He said, I've grown weary of literature that limits itself to exclusively human concerns. We need more work by writers with imaginations, capacious enough to see past the false distinction between human and other than human. And one way that Lanny is described in the book is is as a child of the old times. Mm -hmm. And, And you've said in one interview that Lanny is classically Druidical in his thinking. Yeah that he could be said to exemplify an accomplished post-industrial Celtic metaphysic. And particularly for Americans, yeah. we probably don't entirely understand what you mean by that. So I was curious what it means to be classically druidical or to embody a Celtic metaphysic in your in your mind for Lanny.
1: It would mean that, you know, he wears a big robe, he carries a stick, he <laughs> has a big white beard. I hope so. He listens to um, <laughs> Pentangle. <laughs> no, no, it, it would mean um, <laughs> like he only smokes the <laughs> finest weed, you know. Um, he, um, I, well, what I mean by that, and actually, this is thinking that is ongoing with Lanny, is a kind of um, root rather than a rather than a leaf. And I was talking to Stephen about this last night. Like the the basic animist proposition, which Druids would would borrow from these days, is a contemporary. Um, System of thought, so slightly separate from the Celtic metaphysic, is that all there are many, many beings alive on this planet, only some of which are human, and that and that the the that 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 the undoing of the idea of of Homo sapien superiority is is the only way, is the only means to sustainability to surviving on this planet, Um, and that we therefore have to actively. It, rewilding is not quite the right word, but we actually have to actively undo some of the the kind of um, ills of industrialised life and so on and so forth. But Lanny with the Celtic metaphysic, that would just mean um, circular thinking, understanding that life and death are, are linked, um, seasonal thinking. Like, that's the basic thing. Like, Druids were... Um, in, in the same, I, I ought to think more about Lanny as a druid. Actually, druids weren't. There's no. There's no text. There's no. There's no Bible. There's no. There's no authority. The druid is simply the person who, who, on behalf of the rest of the community, learns as much as he or she possibly can about everything. Mm. So they become medicine man and judge and lawyer, but never for personal gain. There's not that the, the druid isn't superior to the community. The druid is just is, is is just vital to the community, like a living thing. And there is no more. Like there are, there's the elders of the forest, particular tree. but basically the oak, the, the tree, and the oak in particular, is, is the is the ultimate symbol of of because of because of the ways in which it can be collaborated with to, to help human life sustain itself, but also unless it's well cared for, unless you have good forestry or coppicing, or I'm mean, going talk about this in my first book, then you then you only then you only use and you don't regrow. So the Celtic metaphysic will basically be, in Lanny's sense, will be a sense of the indebtedness. Um, Depth of depth of gratitude, really, and and de- um, an understanding of, of of the obligation of of human partners in furthering both life cycle, you know, both life mm-hmm. forms, all life forms. Um, but also, yeah, a, 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 an attentiveness, uh, being yeah. being in tune with the natural world, rather than the consumer world or the chemical world or the you know the whatever else it is. So we- that that would be how it is mainly.
0: You you probably already answered my next question, which was, uh, tell us about the why you opened the book with a poem about a tree by Lynette Roberts. And, um, oh, I love that. Poem. M- maybe you could just read it for us,
1: and yeah. then I'm about to have and... this poem tattooed on my arm. Actually, are you serious? Just the first line, yeah, because I realize that the first line of this poem encompasses my entire philosophy. Oh, wow. <laughs> and contains okay, of my favourite words. I'm
0: glad you're going to read it then.
1: And I had this poem read at my wedding, so it speaks to me of my wife as well, and, and also my children and I have a, a good relationship with this poem. And it's Welsh, and it's gorgeous, right? What a poem. Peace, my stranger is a tree, growing naturally through all its discomforts, trials and emergencies of growth. It is green and resolved. It breathes with anguish, yet it releases peace, peace of mind, growth, movement. It walks this greening sweetness throughout all the earth, where sky and sun tender its habits as I would yours. Mm-hmm. Such a nice poem. That's by Lynette Roberts. It's called Green Magical. She was an interesting person, actually. She was kind of in a group of people around um, Dylan Thomas um, and was, you know was sort of ignored, but also was really, at that time, um, building these incredible uh, social documentary accounts of local dialects and stuff like that and local yeah. local industry, you know, like what people actually did with their hands, you know, dying industries, basically. So she had a kind of archaeological... She's actually quite a toothwarty person. <laughs> yeah, Peace, my stranger is a tree. I love the oceans, but I love Ocean Vuong very much as a person and a writer. And... um and I love that his blurb p- picked up on that, 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 this question of otherness, um, which yeah. is not something that English readers have particularly picked up on because they're so fixated with the Englishness of the book and I'm whether sure. it's a Brexit novel and stuff yes. like that. But actually, if you strip all that out and watch it as, it as if it were a stage play, and these are two-dimensional figures being slid on, why are they being slid on to challenge our, our the immediacy of our, of our hostility to others? Always, yeah. You know? And and the other within ourselves, or within our own family, even, or you know, the other need, m- might even be, an, uh, you know, um, a thought. Um, doesn't need to be a person coming into a community.
0: Well, when you were describing an anthology of of landscape poetry called "The Ground Aslant, you say that your discovery of radical eco poetry has changed your idea of what language means in the Anthropocene. But you also go on to say that you feel that the poem and the tree are linked. That the poem and the tree are siblings and that you seek work that examines this. And I imagine this poem by Lynette Roberts is one of those examples. But tell us more about the poem and the tree.
1: Well, I find the tree a relatively useful shadow structure for all life. I, I think about the tree when I think about my own Longevity or lack of as a a person, as a living thing. I think about it when I think of marriage. I think about it for friendship. I think about it for literature and the production of literature and the culture industry. I think about it with art. There is no better working model of the ways in which ideas are transmuted, Mm. the way in which some things become, you know, host attacking, would you call them... um, um, aggressive things latch on to living things and soak energy. Like to me, you can use a tree as, as, as has evidently been the case throughout the history of science. People have used trees to carry information to, to best display information. Did you ever read that beautiful book? I think it's uh, Chicago University Press or something. But it's like the history of tree graphics. You know, from Darwin's early sketch. Oh no, it's, I haven't It's seen absolutely that. gorgeous. Like if you're looking for some, just some. Lovely stuff, and then obviously the birth of the computer comes at this moment. But obviously, there's still there's still trees. These infographics. Yeah. um As regards to the poem, I I, be, I begin to, as someone that isn't an academic or isn't a poet or, or doesn't have any authority about how poetry functions. I'm relatively naive and, and pleasingly pleased to be relatively naive about the way poems work on me and others. I tend to think of the poem as uh, no longer owned by the poet. And wherever possible, no longer defined by the collection or, or, or by, by its sequencing with other poems. I try to think of it as its own thing, that that I have encountered or brought into my own tree-like being to sit on, as it were, one of one of my branches or tendrils for some time, mm. and possibly become a part of me. And therefore, that um, this, you carry the, the risk in, in a way, like of plagiarism, all the time. Because if you just read as much poetry as I do, with no, I never stop and. Think I just pour it into my body all the time. That means I am I am part poetry. I have read so much poetry over the years that it must be a part of me. Mm. This language is now not just in my head, as possibly you know, possibly to be regurgitated or used or or whatever. It, it must be physically part of my cellular structure now. In the same way as you know, if you I, I'll read you this new piece I wrote, but the same way as that, if someone seven thousand years ago puts a stone in in the branches of an old yew tree and 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 that, you know that stone becomes part of the tree and then when that tree rots and becomes fossilized you have an anomaly which is beautiful which is encounter and gesture and the point is that the opportunity for gestures of that kind is the greatest gift to us as 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 beings on this planet whether that is generosity of spirit or an act of charity or an embrace mm-hmm. or, or or an axe or a war or a nuclear bomb like these are all gestures in a, in a, in like a fleeting like Shuffle deck of opportunities for gesture, um, and so I, I see even like once you start to think about trees in that way as kind of templates for, for potential goodness, but also potential harm, and you know, maps of potential harm as well. Like it really is striking because I love them more than anything else. I, I you know, obviously I love my I love my family, I love my children, I love human but I love trees in 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 a in a way that seems to predate me, and I hope will will, will outlive me. My respect for them is is post-linguistic. It's, it, it cannot be verbalized. I am humbled by them in a way that I'm mm. simply not by anything human. Um, and that's, that's grown and grown and grown, but it was definitely there in me as a child. I had big, spiritual, world-changing encounters with trees as a kid. Um, and I wanted to get closer. I wanted to, like, yeah. be in the tree. I wanted to, like, have exchange of fluids with trees no no, i'm not saying i'm fucking trees but you know what i mean like it wasn't enough to just stand admiringly on it i wanted to be a part of its vulnerability as well so i used to go to the very very top of tall trees in very strong winds because i wanted to feel how vulnerable the top of that tree was and Mm -hmm. i wanted to be a part of that and stuff and therefore when you start to think that way like the violence of contemporary politics particularly towards others and and involved people i see a character like trump as almost in the great map of the world, in the great in the great map of this planet, he is the anti tree if you see what i mean, like all the values inherent in trees and in those that love them and those that respect them and consider them superior to us that whole as it were ecosystem of thought is anathema. it is the very i think it's as opposite as you can get um and I find that a renewing i find in that an invitation for renewal because he will die, mm-hmm. and they will not he can't chop down all the trees and i I say that as uh, like as 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 an allegory like i know he's not trying to chop down trees he's got got other concerns but even if he wanted to he couldn't because the spirit of regrowth is so is so it it dwarfs human ambition Mm. and i find that so inspiring as to almost be like the deathbed thought i like i find that i hope that's my last thought Mm. a bit like the merwin thing you know i hope you know on my last day on earth i will plant a tree yeah and this thing about if you were to plant a tree, I just planted some trees back in the UK, partly because I've had to fly so much on this trip and I don't feel great about that. To plant a tree that you can no longer put your arms round on your last day on this earth is to have done a good thing. Mm. And, I, and, and, and when you think about what that tree has hosted to billions of species of all sorts of things that have lived on that tree in your lifetime as well like that, can there be a better thing? I don't think so.
0: It reminds me of the... Adrian Rich quote, in times like these, to have you listen at all, it's necessary to talk about trees. Yeah. Do you know that one? Yeah. Well,
1: I, I didn't actually. I, I love Adrian Rich, but I, I just saw Ilya Kaminsky, who's, uh-huh. who's a hell of a...
0: He's amazing.
1: He's good for putting out quotes. He, he uses is. social media just as a kind of quote machine.
0: Yes. Everyone should follow him
1: <laughs> yeah, for yeah. poetry. Everyone, everyone should read Deaf Republic. Yes, have you read it?
0: I have. And Ooh. it's amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good book.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Max Porter about his latest book, Lanny. When you mention the the rock and the tree making something anomalous, it also makes me think about the question of hybridity in relationship to ecological narratives, Mm -hmm. because your book is a mashup of linguistically disrupted language, to use your language, and of language that moves like undulating waves across the page, but also of different genres children's books, screenplays. Um, And as the book moves on, the distinction between one point of view and another point of view becomes less and less well delineated. So even the boundaries between persons, I I feel, start to blur as we progress in Lanny. But then when we look at your activities as a writer and person in the world, you wrote a text for the British artist Nicola Hicks, whose sculptures are humanized animals and or beast-like humans. You've mentioned interest in the Lion Man of Hodlundstein Stadel, which is an ivory sculpture discovered in a German cave, which is the oldest example of figurative art and of zoomorphic art. So in this case, it's a sculpture that is a lion-human carved out of mammoth ivory. Um, And even when you describe your fascination when you were 17 years old with a Francis Bacon painting, It seems like you're most mesmerized by the center section of the triptych, which you describe as follows. I recognize that this was the same face ripped sideways, attacking or being attacked, spewing from a black monstrous shadow horrifyingly unrelated to the body. It was somehow, and you have this in italics, disgustingly middle as if these curved clean shadow lines had come to the wrong audition to tell a lurid story. They're a careful moment of attentive blackness in a windowed world, an architectural violation. So when I think about hybrid creatures, you're attracted to something disgustingly indeterminate or disgustingly middle, and the way your book itself sort of exalts hybridity with dead Papa Toothwort literally being a shapeshifter and Lanny being everywhere in the town, even when he is absent, and also sort of the central absence when he's present. I, I I want to hear more about <laughs> about hybrid creatures and middleness, and what's going on for you and and obviously a lifelong fascination with this because you were talking earlier about binaries yeah. and ambiguity, and here we see over and over again this motif.
1: It's beautiful. It's so nice of you to pick these things out. Um, um I I remember as a child just being utterly baffled by by the kind of um by by linguistic authority really by by determinism of any kind i'm not a linguist so i don't know i don't know what the what the right language to use about this is but like for example the idea of being gay or straight always struck me as utterly ludicrous when presumably there are infinite variations of you know anything in between as we're now as we're now discovering the the, the battle you know for for rights is in the language um and you guys are far advanced here in this country, and, and, and you just you, you have a kind of straightforwardness about just deciding we are now going to do that. We are now going to be more careful with our language. and We're now going to reempower people to decide what language is used about them. It's great in the UK. The, the the fights about this are just so sort of. Um, I mean, they're, they're very aggressive, but they're also there's no give. There's no under. There's just every every you know. Everybody is outraged, um, and I, I, I can be sympathetic with outrage on, on, on all on all fronts of the debate. I certainly people make good points, and people have real real there's real feeling behind it. But what is disappointing to me is 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 the kind of thrashing within what is obviously a very counterproductive cage, which is the language we have for it. So until we until we choose. To make the, to be more progressive or more radical with our language and more flexible, then we're always going to be just thrashing around in this same small cage. Um, and I felt that quite keenly as a young person. But I also felt as a creative. I mean, I have this impulse to make stuff. When I was painting, I felt I should be singing, or no I can't sing, making music. And when I was making music, I missed the la- I missed the exactitude and the control of writing. And you know, so like, even if I mean, I'll show you my notebook. You know. I start to draw something and then I have to write and then I start to write and I need to go back to a kind of half line and then I need to sort of label it because the diagrammatic is attractive to me. So that for a long time was tension and was very counterproductive and I couldn't make anything because that tension was overwhelming. And then I just realised in the early days of making Grief of the Single Feathers that 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 tension wasn't in fact tension, it was um, energy between... For, and I, all I needed to do was take that energy and use it in a, as, as literature, um, hence, hence the movement between different forms in both my books. They, they aren't, they aren't, they're not doing it for the sake of it. They're partly doing it because that, that it's natural to me and one has to, find, one has to channel or plug into the most natural way of writing that one can as a writer, I think. There's no point forcing yourself to be... You can learn, you can improve and you get better and I'm only at the beginning of this and I hope I'll keep improving in the line but you also... The, the the natural energy is is there. You're only plugging into something that's in you, and I and I and I just needed to find that and plug into it. And it turns out to to represent to other people at least um, experimentalism. I don't think it is no more than anything is an experiment. Um, but what I am pleased it represents in relation to other books is an anti. Um, uh, I guess an. A, I suppose I don't want to be too portentous about it, but it's an anti capitalist instinct in as much as I don't believe that the labels we put on books mean anything. And I think that literature is the most dangerous place that you've probably read me talk about this before. Like, literature is the most preposterous place for those labels to be as pernicious as they are mm. between poetry, non fiction, fiction, essay, kids' books. They're mad, especially between science fiction and, and so called literary fiction. And again, in the UK, the level of debate about this is utterly basic. Every time, <laughs> you know, Ishiguro writes The Buried Giant and has to write a long piece in The New Yorker about why he likes sci-fi and why right. he's always learned from sci-fi, you know. And I Ian think he, he just yeah. acted
0: like he invented
1: science fiction yeah. a little like bit. In a, in a way that you're like, dude, are you taking the piss? Like, have you ever been in a bookstore? It, you know, but these are, these are cultural gatekeeping instincts by people who perhaps feel... Um, that their time is up, and therefore there 's there's, there's a kind of lashing out at the at the, at the at the reading public who are like no that 's fine man we, we've we 've had sex with robots for quite some time in our books, you know yeah. um, so all i, I, I don 't want to take up any particularly strenuous position in relation to all that i I have to write what comes naturally, and it seems partly because I get bored of prose and partly because I want this energy i 'm describing borrowed from other forms. My next book is going to be about intimacy and, and and a particular type of visual art, a particular type of illumination um, that, that, is, that that is the speed of which, a bit like the sound on the page in Lanny, the speed of which is utterly different to the speed of writing a novel, of reading a novel. Novels seem to me to have become defined and limited to the amount of time it takes to read them. So like 16 hours to sit and read and then you need a beginning, a middle and an end and you... You need to tell people where characters were born and what they got up to before they met their lover and all this kind of stuff. I, I disagree. Um, I think it's totally fine to have a shapeshifting character come in on page one made of made of junk. It's it's okay to do that and then to just chop that and start something else. But I want to, you know, I know that 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 means that there's a different type of physical relationship between reader and text. And in my next book, I want to take that further and actually stop. I want I want. Imagine, so like, say this borrows from poetry or plays, I want my next book to borrow from exhibition catalogues and psalters. I want that kind of slowness to be into a text. So actually you are not allowed to turn the page until you've spent 15 minutes thinking mm. carefully about it. So closer to a graphic novel in as much as like that relationship between image and text, which seems utterly laborious when you're doing it, can be a millisecond for the reader, but that, but all the laboriousness is present in their encounter with it. Wow. So I want to, I want to get out. I want to get more. I want to get visual art into the book in a way that, that interrupts and celebrates its novelness. Cause that, that
0: will it be your visual art? I know you draw. I,
1: I, I don't. Yeah. I think it probably will be, or it will certainly be born off. It or related to it. Yeah. Uh, or certainly I'll do it and I might discard it. The point is I have to do the, I have to do the work. I think I have to slow down in, in that way. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to return to like possibly another way that the book is enacting uh, a sense of being connected to place because it feels like when we were talking earlier about Mad Pete and Lanny are are uh, connected to place, not because of how long they've been there, but because of a certain attentiveness and curiosity and yeah. sense of wonder. Um, but it also feels like um, another way is is knowing the history of of the land that you're on not in the terms of British Empire and British nas- nationalism like Mrs. Larton in, mm. in, in the book. Uh, I was thinking about a couple conversations that I had on the show, with one with Laylee Long Soldier and one with Mitchell S. Jackson, mm. where they both start their personal histories by doing land acknowledgments and the history of the land. Yeah. Uh, as, as that prefaces anything and contextualize anything they're going to tell about what happens to them. And then another recent guest, uh, Morgan Parker, she said... Uh, a couple of years ago, she said this quote. There are two neuroses that I consider particularly American, the habit of forgetting and the inability to imagine what has not been. We are even afraid to imagine our own rehabilitation. We have never been free. And I yeah. I-, I wanted to have you read like we did with Lanny's dad and mom, if I wanted you to read two short pieces by Dead Papa Toothwart and Mad Pete, so again, two people who are connected to the land, mm. but in this ex- in these examples, it feels like they 're connected through a, a sense of attentiveness to uh, time mm. and to history and time like that that ignorance is is a obstacle toward land connection
1: yeah um, I love that quote i mean um, i don 't want to be diagnosing british um, British problems, it's boring. But I've just been in Australia, and um, they they begin every event now. They, Australia have raised their game in recent with years. The acknowledgements. With the land acknowledgments. With yeah. the acknowledgment of country before every single event. And they also don't just say, we are on country, and they name the country and the elders and everything. They actually say the hurt that was done to the people that lived here will never be fully um, uh, heal We we will ne- we are all of us doing partial work, but it can never be truly healed. Um, and I was thinking, because I'm very impressed in the way that, that, that New Zealand has has become a place informed by and indebted to, and in honor of Maori culture. Um, and it's just it's not forced. It's not it's not a box ticking exercise. It's 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 part it's part of the place. It's part of the fabric of the place. And it made me just marvel at how ill-formed the uk is in relation to its creation myths we don't have an indigenous people and 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 our attempts to 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 make one are are laughable you know like english fascists would have a kind of moment of english purity around about the time ironically that we were least like there was there was like danes and you know and (laughs) and, you know i mean like all, all like and certainly french I mean we've never been anything other than immigrants all the way down. We're yeah. immigrants as the great English novelist Sarah Moss says, we're immigrants we're immigrants all the way back, as as are all of us and and until we get back to Africa. But the the strident um kind of um fantasy ph fantasy of racial purity in the uk is this sort of relentlessly gargled intoxicant that, that we that we feel and someone just needs to stand up at a certain point and say it's absolute nonsense what are any of you talking about mm. but we don't because it, it sells papers and it and it, it gets people into the vote, into the polling booth and it's um and it plugs into as, as as populism here has it plugs into white supremacy which is just the most powerful philosophy on earth at the moment, I think, regrettably. Mm-hmm. In fact, the two twin – I did this thing about lying in Sydney. The two twin lies for me, one is superiority of human beings in nature and one is white supremacy. I don't think yeah. there's – they're the pillars. Human upon, supremacy I, and, I think and white so. supremacy. I think they're the two pillars upon which all fallacy and all lies and all aggression is, is grown. Um, well, well, let's... And they both need to be dismantled with every fiber of our energy. Yeah. You know? Every poem should be written against those two lies. Every, every teacher should be teaching their pupils mm. against those two lies. And until that happens, we're locked in a, we're locked in a cycle of violence. And the fact that, 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 that you know, disaster capitalism and, you know, and the machine age have, have been such handy bedfellows to those two lies um, is going to be very, very hard to unpick. And we probably don't have time. <laughs> no. anyway you're on a cheering <laughs>
0: yeah. well we don't I, I, I completely agree with
1: you um, and I think that's a perfect
0: segue if you, we could go to page 64
1: Dead Papa Toothwort has been just watched a person mash a hedgehog with a knife Dead Papa Toothwort was crouched in the septic tank watching this and he found it very pleasing he saw in it an aspect of himself "'of his part in things. "'He watched the boy's mum mashing a hedgehog, "'turning panic-stricken animal into watery blood-spike soup, "'and he loved it very much. "'Same as Mrs. Larton stamping on a poisoned mouse to finish it off. "'Same as John and Oliver shooting jackdaws at the tip. "'Same as Jean drowning wasps in her jam trap, "'one day, as good as any, in a human war against others.' he loved the foot and mouth coals and spent those months slipping in and out of burning livestock nothing new to toothwart veteran witness of the bovine burks the flues the wonderful rinderpest rain rotten sheep scab the cycles of mange mastitis and pox he's seen things die in thousands of ways he loves it when a lamb gets stuck being born when man and ewe and lamb are all suspended, reckoning with the terrible joke of the flesh and the rubbery links between life and death. Der Papa Toothwort has seen monks executed on this land, seen witches drowned, seen industrial slaughter of animals, seen men beat each other senseless, seen bodies abused and violated, seen people hurt their closest, harm themselves, plot and worry of panic and rage, and the same can be said of the earth. He has seen the land cut apart, its top layer disemboweled, stripped and plundered and replundered, sliced into tinier pieces by wire, hedges and law. He has seen it poisoned by chemicals. He has seen it outlive its surgeons, worshippers and attackers. It holds firm and survives the village again and again, and he loves it. He wouldn't do well in a wilderness.
0: I'm listening to Max Porter read from Lanny. And, and could we hear Mad Pete on page 96 also? I think a companion to this.
1: Pete. Very strange mood, drunk a few beers and then some whiskey, then some not-ready slow gin. The sound in the village was all wrong. I went for my walk around the block and got the ill feeling and hurried back. The darkness was uneven, slippery. I sought refuge in my kitchen, but the pressure between different objects in my house was all wrong. Something was bad. I had a glass of drink on the table, a newspaper and a pen. Three of them were fit to lift off and explode. Things were closing in. I sat and breathed. Six in, six out. On the fridge was a postcard from my friend Ben, a Revillius. "'the wonky Westerbury horse with the train popping along behind. "'I've treasured it for years. "'I looked at this image, this lovely English thing, "'and I felt sick, bile in my mouth, neck sweating like a fever. "'I grabbed it off the fridge and I was going to rip it up, "'but that didn't seem to satisfy the hatred I felt towards it, "'which was something long, something accumulated. "'I necked a load more gin and stared at the postcard. "'I hated that quaint image.' "'Hatred for this card had seemingly been hiding "'under the surface of my quiet existence for God knows how long. "'My whole hateful, guilty life "'queued up ready to land on this poor image. "'I loathed it in ways I'd been keeping about my person, "'in my beard, in my ears.' under my fingernails, since my parents told me to sod off cos I was a faggot and a disgrace, since I first read those pamphlets about what the brave Englishman did in Bengal, did in Kenya, did in Northern Ireland, since I first watched animals slaughtered, since I first sold my fucking soul to a London gallery in a glossy magazine, since I first saw supermarket carrier bags in the throats of rotting seabirds, since I saw behind the crematorium curtain to the giggling assistants dropping ash on the floor... This all queued up, these painful things. I don't know what was going on, but I was steaming now. Growling vexed, I got a biro. I sat down and I very carefully drew lines across that postcard. Then I rotated it and drew lines across those lines. A grid to obscure the lush Wiltshire hills. The mysterious Neolithic bullshit, the pleasing clouds, the lovely chuff-chuff two-dimensional train. Fuck every lying English watercolour acre before and after it. Every more on riding it, and again across, hatching away, tightening my grid. Rovilius disappearing into the dark night again. Poor man, shiny black ink smudging and denting and obliterating the nice gesture of my friend Ben. I did not know myself. I did not know what on earth I was.
0: I've been listening to Max Porter read from Lanny.
1: So you. Do you have Do you know Eric Ravilious? Have you seen his work? I haven't. Oh, he's one of these beautiful mid-century epi- oh, made my palms sweat reading Pete. There, <laughs> um, he's a mid-century British watercolour painter who was part of this sort of beautiful English modernism, uh, rural, with people like John and Nash and, and the Nash brothers and um, Eric, John Piper and um, Eric Borden, printmakers and watercolour makers. And he he, he died at over Iceland his plane just disappeared it fell out the sky somewhere mm. hence the you know disappearing into the night again huh.
0: I want to I want to um return to dead papa toothwort for a second and the way you describe him as pan, both panhistorical and connected to deep time and connect that to some of the things you've said about time in in other places you have a buzzfeed piece about not being able to remember your father's voice and in that piece, you said to slow down a bit and consider the huge landscapes of what is not known, to consider possible ways of communicating, ways of missing that aren't documented, that don't have immediate emotional payback, that can't be factored into any conventional notions of happy and sad, grieving and recovered. And then in a, in a interview you did of Alice Oswald, she says, I do love the company of plants. They are so expressive and patient. I can watch every movement of the gesture of a leaf uncurling through a week. I'm addicted to this slow performance. It reminds me that the human perspective is partial. And when I think of you talking about ways of communicating that don't have immediate emotional payback, and Oswald talking of our human perspective as partial, I think the importance of Lanny and dead Papa Toothwart being outside of our grasp, outside of our ability to know them in the sense that unlike the townspeople who, whenever there's a, a gap in knowledge are quick to fill it, and they're often filling it with fear or suspicion or prejudice, what you and Oswald seem to be holding forth in which Lanny and, and dead Papa Toothwart seem to be embodying as a sort of honoring or elevating or celebrating of the human point of view being partial, that protecting that partiality and the open space that is beyond the human, allowing otherness beyond our ability to document it is somehow crucial that, as you mentioned, the he- the horrible hedgehog scene, that we don't stab to death a hedgehog that's stuck in our drain simply because it has messed up the day. Yeah. But I wanted to hear, I guess, about slowness and deep time in relationship to this
1: oh i don't know i mean i i i i just enjoy hearing you connect those two thoughts Um, for me the the, the, this the the not knowing that the possible time i feel it As a secular person, I I am impoverished in as much as I do not. I met George Saunders last week and he he Mm. told me some interesting things about Buddhism. I I do not meditate and I think I should. I don't have access to the infinite beyond the ways I write and the ways I read things. And beyond connecting, for example, the imaginative curiosity of my kids and their storytelling and their sense of humour with with that. And the piece I'm about to read you, actually, um, after this interview, which I've written for a musician... Music is, 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 is where I go um, to contemplate that, that, um, the, the beyond, that, that which is beyond us. Um, but my access to it is, is bereavement. And I think that everybody needs an access point. Uh, for some people it is faith. I don't have faith in the conventional sense. Um, i, I I'm, in fact i I diagnose myself with a very unhealthy pessimism skepticism about the world at the moment and about human nature, so my only the way in which I, I grow hope in myself and, and feel it as Dickinson suggests uh, bountiful growing giving and enlarging in my soul is by thinking of a, of a post human Musical future beyond us, Mm. where where there is possibly um, the Earth doing its doing its patient unfurling, as Alice describes. Um, But 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 even if it's even if it's dried up, even if it's barren, even if it's barren's a horrible word, even if it's um, even if we have poisoned the thing and and it needs several millennia to recover. It will no longer be defined by the shitting, pissing, fighting, earning, dying, shopping rhythms of ours. Uh, that, our, our rhythm is not natural. And every effort for us, I think even this in terms of like global geopolitical crises we all face, like we, have to, we have to separate those efforts from the 24-hour cycle of, of food and drink and consumerism. Some things will take time. To fix and heal beyond beyond a person's employment or beyond a person's lifetime, we think tragically. Our uh, thinking, both artistic thinking and uh, um, uh, you know, remedial thinking, uh, you know, even thinking into sort of aid terms and stuff, tragically limited by the by the potential of the working day. Um, and that is something that we need to think beyond. I think mm. um, we, we'd not, as a culture, I don't think, and Western civilization, I think, has become particularly bad at this—at the at the faith in what a seed planted might become. We have become so fixated in either gaining from or or, or or reaping the rewards of what is planted for us in our in our time that we are we aren't thinking beyond ourselves, and therefore, we, I mean, what what more is our situation now than a chronic lack of imaginative? Possibility for those that come after us, be them our our children or other people's children. So we all talk in very easy terms about, like, the empathy project that that art is, and it can be a cop out, and, and empathy is a sort of easy way to describe an imaginative enterprise. But actually, that the failure to imagine life beyond us and and behind us has, I think, had quite tragic consequences. So that's my interest in deep time, really, yeah. is rendering myself no less important than, the sh- the, the, as Dead Papa Toothwatch says, the atom memory of the pulse of, of, of me who was here before or me who will be here afterwards. The great humbling, you know, the great, the great humility project, um, which, again, I think is, 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 is druidical. There's no name, you know, <laughs> the druid thing to go back to it. There's no names. There's no big stars. In right. the druid world, I mean, there are hedge druid and chief druids and all this shit. If you're if you're into that, I'm not particularly. But the point is, is that it's a nameless thing. It doesn't carry with it any authority, and it doesn't carry with it. It's not weaponized against other people in any way. It it absorbs in and give and gifts out, and much more like a plant than a human.
0: There, well, there's a there's a moment in Lanny that I think is sort of a George Saunders moment. Um, when he was on the show, we were sort of linking some of the things he does over and over again in stories to Buddhism in the sense mm. that we're often trapped into stream of consciousness points of view, limited uh, monkey mind points of view. Yeah. And he bangs them together. They collide in the hopes that we might be able to glimpse yeah. the beyond yeah. the, the, these two limitations. And you have this scene that you tell twice between Mrs. Larton and Jolie. Yeah. And we get the self narrative the self-justifying narrative and all the ways each of them distort what happened between the two of them. And they're completely contradictory. There's almost no overlap. And it just feels like that moment in the book shows the limit of limitations of character and of selfhood.
1: Exactly. And, and it's a comic moment and it's not particularly subtle in terms of, the, in terms of the politics involved, but it has to be at that point because it's the point in which the intimacy and the, and therefore the complicity of the first pops open into everybody and and it's five actors playing all the parts but you don't you know you need to do the work so it's like it's like reader get involved now but i like to think that the, the george saunders opportunity there he uses comedy in a similar way so that pop as you just got that clashing together people i like the idea that the reader is like i'm actually going to come right up out like uh, you've gifted them the opportunity to, to float way up above the village and all they're seeing is is the kind of karate moves of these two people the futility of that? They'll fight all day, you know. Like you could do it w- w- between nation states, you could do it with, you know, you could probably do it between planetary states if you were big enough. Yeah. Um, that 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 fight a bit like a, a you know. Um, a, it's evolution, isn't it? So a bit like a, a thing that comes along and eats, you know, like those, those bats that come along, they eat a certain type of plant, they then shit in the plant, and the plant then draws the nutrients from that plant and puts it back into it, and on it goes, and on it goes, and mm. on it goes. And that Mrs. Larton and Jolie are like that. Neither, there's no right or wrong, there's no... And it's like highly specific what they're talking about, is English mannerisms and politics and a missing kid. But actually I want the reader to be right up above them, as dead puppet tooth what might be, hearing them as if they're oboe and clarinet, in a, in a, in a, you know, mm. and that therefore that fight is you, when you zoom right out of it is is just the working mechanisms of a, a of a natural thing mm. that has to have opposing forces that. in order to carry on. You know, so I hope you like, as I say, despite how kind of silly it is and comic it is, and I like reading that bit of book events and stuff because it's fun. Or it, it's just noise. It's like frequencies. You know.
0: Mm. Well, before we end, I feel like. We have to touch on feminism and masculinity. So I was hoping um, we could talk about it, both of them, in relation to Lanny. Both of them come up in in many of your interviews. For instance, you name the children's book Angry Arthur as one of your favorites (laughs) and describe it as nailing the futility of male rage. You've also said things like this. I have friends who think the space race, which to me is basically the arms race, is humankind's greatest triumph. But to me, the whole Elon Musk philosophy of escaping the planet is just disgusting. What is it about the technological elites? What is it about these men who are obsessed with the size of their dicks? These <laughs> these men or these people who since Icarus have been so ashamed by their bodies, so disgusted by the human condition that they feel they must escape it. It's just gross.
1: I, no, not, I didn't i didn't have my breakfast that day man
0: <laughs> but I do feel like i mean that's not the tone yeah uh, of what's going on in Lanny, but I do feel like you're working through questions of masculinity um, within a, 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 a feminism um that i would i just want to hear some of your thoughts and deliberations as you um you well, put these a, characters on my the
1: wife page. my wife who is very astute and doesn't give me much feedback on my work, um, other than what she feels I need, if you see what I mean. She doesn't tell me my stuff is good, she but she she did say to me the other day, It seems to me that your subject, the thing you're most interested in, is probably men. And I was like, <laughs> oh, 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 shit. because <laughs> <laughs> she's probably right, um, perhaps that's to do with an absent father and a very interesting stepfather and a very close relationship with my brother and growing up in a time when there's been in the UK a kind of uh, crisis, as there is everywhere, of of masculinity, but the way that that's resulted in a kind of hyperbolic buffoonery, particularly in the political mainstream, of a kind of of army of, of, of crooks. I guess you're seeing it here as well. Like, bad guys, unashamed, and performing a kind of man of the people shtick whilst they literally have their hand in your pocket robbing you. Mm. Um, and it seemed to me when you grow up reading like, you know, Victorian novels or Russian novels or, or fables or fairy tales, it's like how do how we let these most basic assholes triumph in the public? And it's because with this various, you know, you can diagnose it in any way you want. One, one of the reasons I think was the intellectualization of. The, 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 a lot of the most extraordinary th- advances in feminism happened in the university, and not enough in the home. I don't think. Like in the UK, for example, housework, like basic domestic feminism, is still very underdeveloped. Women do all the housework, and men, when they do do housework or look after the babies, it's a f- huge deal, and everyone has to thank them and clap them. And, and re- so, actually, we haven't really come along very far at all and you know men talk about babysitting their own kids and shit like that i'm guilty of it myself um, and that's 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 because i i suppose uh, that's because i there's so many different reasons why that is but one of them is how entrenched patriarchal systems and 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 and, uh, and where we are at now in in the kind of industrialized capitalist system i it's very very hard to unpick it and efforts haven't been made because of of what's at stake for them for the most powerful people in the system um i I guess in my first book there was a kind of like pre-theoretical domestic feminism in as much as they just can't function without her and they don't want to and she was good at it and they're not so it's like a kind of yelping boyish feminism just of the absent mother and that comes from respect for strong women that raised me and um and in Lanny, I suppose it extends hopefully beyond any kind of archetypes and more into, as I said earlier, more into the kind of psychoanalytic territory um, of liberating Jolie from the maternal, from prescribed maternal models. Um, but she does that work herself. That's not particularly me. I think I just... that, 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 that in order to make her truthful I needed to give her that because otherwise she would have been an, an underdeveloped person and you can't say that someone's into this and then like not arm them with the other bit it's not like you can't just say Robert's a boring city slicker you actually have to give him some pain you have to give him some feelings you yeah. know you have to give him some some, some sexual energy and stuff like that and like, no, those things knock, a, knock around and create their own things then that's out of my hands That's that's no longer the novelist's work but I I'm very worried about the way we speak about I'm very worried still in the UK about the way we review books by women. One of my kind of bugbears on tour for this book has been the way in which we – the way in which a kind of – hey, explicit misogyny exists in book reviews in the UK when when women write. um, It's the same here. Is it? Yeah. Particularly metafictional stuff or anything Mm -hmm. autobiographical. Like it's like – I mean, it literally. Sometimes the language is no more it's no, is no more subtle than this. And like this, I'm almost quoting from a book review in the UK about a brilliant and interesting book about scientific breakthroughs in the female body in pregnancy and childbirth. And the review literally said, "This girl needs to lighten up and get laid more." You know, like for a book about for yeah. a book about reproductive th- concerns, this there's not much sex in this book, and there's not many laughs. Um, so why is it that a kind of um, Gittish? Uh, do you have the word "git" here? Like what, a kind of, a kind of thuggish, anti-intellectualism need go hand in hand with misogyny, and it's like, well, well was it ever thus? And that's so disappointing. Um, and there's been an element. I mean, oh, Christ, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a middle-aged white guy, you know, very happily on book tour. But I'm, in, I'm interested in the fact that there's almost what, what seems to me certainly coming from the same. In in, in a kind of anti-effete, you know, like what what's like Lanny so pretentious, like, like as if it's not masculine to be interested, as if environmentalism and its broader concerns and making are under the umbrella of environmentalism is not is not man enough. Um, you see a lot of that. You mm-hmm. know, I see a lot of it here. Um, and then you get these kind of then you get men, particularly male novelists, are put on this pedestal and given the right to speak of I them. Mean, here we are having a nice informal chat, but. The idea that the novelist has this authority, I think it's, it's, it's bogus. Um, we must speak about the work and we must make good work, but I don't want to hear what a novelist has to say about um, or why a male novelist speaks in, in, in praise of you know, limiting you know, abortion rights, something like that. Like these, these are monstrous permissions being given to the wrong people in the culture. Mm. Um, why aren't we listening to nurses, doctors, you know, therapists, teachers? The hierarchy is all wrong. Um, so I suppose one of the things, I mean, I'm breaking my own rule now. When asked about fatherhood recently at a festival, I just said that I, I don't want to answer that. The only answer to that question is that my wife is very kindly looking after my kids while I'm here. Mm-hmm. And my wife very kindly let me steal her wisdom and brilliance and read some of the books on her shelf in order to become the writer that I am and the reader that I am. And I am only indebted to her and there's no, there's no further complexity to it. Um, and similarly, yeah, I mean, that, that that's it, really. I think that, that that I have to be on my knees apologetic for those like me but also hope that I can make work that is interesting to those who hand-in-hand who, who hand would like to see that change, you know. And one of the nice things about these books having been a success is that I bring up, I t- to take other writers with me um, and we must now think of ourselves as a community, I think, of, of, of people interested in words and language. So like the recommending of books to each other and the reading of each other's work and the, and the reading outside of our comfort zones and outside of it, you know, because you know, like, I obviously read a lot of independent, but I need to I need to read as widely as possible and talk about it as widely as possible. And, and as a bookseller first, you know, I need to hand-sell to people the literature that I'm interested in in the hope that they would hand-sell to me the literature they're interested in. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just going around in my own... Microclimate.
0: Maybe we could end with you hand-selling a book or two to our audience.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. Well, the book we discussed already, Deaf Republic, by Ilya Kaminsky, is an astonishing book, published by Grey Wolf now. I think it's out. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Where should people start with Alice Oswald?
1: Anywhere. 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 I think... She doesn't write bad poems, and, and she's on a she's on a you know she's one of these lifetime poets. She's on a she's on a journey. So plug in any way you want. But for me, the, the woods, etc., the early collection is extraordinary, and Dart, the great bar, you know the great book about the river, is amazing. But if you like, if you want to just dip your toe in, maybe read her latest collection, Falling Awake, which is poem for poem just, just sublime, isn't it? She's she's at the good work. Uh, you know, I read um, a lot of a lot actually. An early conversation with Alice a few years ago got me into Jory Graham, who I now consider to be an almost her. religious figure in my, in my reading. I go to her like...
0: She's one of my favourite I go poets, to her yeah. like
1: I go to a glass of water, do you know what I mean, or when <laughs> I need hydration. Um, I, I read Ocean Vuong's novel recently, which is just about to be published here. Have you read it?
0: I haven't read the novel, but I love the poetry collection. His novel
1: is astonishing. And, and in, for all the reasons we're describing as a gift Beyond literature as a gift to the human race is is it's a very very special book, and I think miraculously, despite it, obviously presumably being he got paid a lot of money for it, and it'll probably win the Pulitzer, and it'll probably become a big American novel, much talked about. I think it will just dance right around those those things. It, it cannot be contained. It's so mm. graceful, and it contains within it such a generosity of spirit that it won't be tarnished by this world. It is better than this world, it's despite that. being utterly about this world. So
0: it's like Lanny, the child <laughs> in book. book form. Yeah, right. I no hope way. so. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, we we are. We, he's interested in my work, and I'm interested in his. That may be it. Um, but well, that is a, that is an extraordinarily good book. It really is Ocean's book, and 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 n- not just in the way his poetry is good because it contains that, but there is a there is an exact there is an intellectual rigor at work in his novel that I, I is quite astonishing. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks
1: so much. It's been yeah.
0: great. We're talking today to Max Porter about his latest book from Gray Wolf Press, Lanny. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO. Volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon. Found at kboo.fm. More of Max Porter's work can be found at maxporter.co.uk. And Max has added to the bonus archive a reading of a recently written poem for the singer-songwriter Joan Shelley. This joins supplemental material by Ted Chang, Marlon James, Layli Long Soldier. Carmen Maria Machado Forrest Gander John Keane, Jen Bourvin, Christine Scutt Christina Rivera Garza and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album Imre Lodbrog A Sa Petite Ami can be found on iTunes and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com/slash Barbara Browning.